Thank you, Joe, for reading scripture this morning. As we think about interacting with God's word this morning, I'm going to take a few moments in silence and you can share with the Lord your desire to be sensitive to the ministry of God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be people who are doers of your word and not hearers only. As we consider a portion of Mark this morning, we want to be sensitive to you, to Christ at work in us, and to your spirit at work in us. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. We have a husband and a wife who are constantly fighting one another can the marriage stand? Can godly offspring resort? We have government, government leaders. One branch of government constantly fighting, bickering, tearing down the other branch. Can that nation be effective in fulfilling their purpose? Within your body, you have various body <clears throat> Cells fighting one another, such as takes place in cancer, can the body continue to exist? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark, chapter 3. Reading together verses 20 through 35. Mark 3, 20 through 35. Mark chapter 3, 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. I'm sorry, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now keep in mind as we discuss this portion of Scripture that when we arrive at this point in Mark, 
Mark has already communicated that Jesus is the Son of God. He's sensitive to the Spirit. His Father is pleased with him. He has taught with authority. He has cast out demons and so on. Keep in mind also that just prior to this passage, that the twelve were called by Christ to be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And in this particular passage, we find two stories, two accounts interacting with one another. We find that in the first part of the account, Jesus is entering a house, he is teaching, there's so many people around him that he and his apostles cannot even eat. So his family is coming to take charge of him because they think he is crazy. He's out of his mind. And then the teachers of the law come from Jerusalem and they accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And then we go back to Jesus' mother and brothers actually arriving. The two stories presenting a new point, which we'll amplify more next week. But this morning we want to focus on verses 22 through 30, what would be called the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit by many people. We notice that Jesus is being rejected by his family in verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Here's his own mother and his brothers saying, Jesus is out of his mind. He's lost it. He's crazy. And then the teachers of the law, who come from down from Jerusalem, are also making a charge. There's family rejection, and then we find the teachers from Jerusalem are coming. They would have left Jerusalem, and if they followed the normal pattern, would have went across the Jordan River to the east side of the Jordan River, up along the east side of the Jordan River, and then cross back to the west side of the Jordan River to get to where Jesus was, probably in Capernaum. Probably about an 80-mile trip. And their mission is to destroy Christ. So they arrive and they make a charge, a twofold charge. First of all, they say, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, this is the teachers of the law making this charge about Christ. He's possessed. By Beelzebub. Baal being the prince. Baal's abode or dynasty being involved. He was the chief rival of Yahweh faith. It was a cult of heaven. It's a history of Beelzebub. The arch ruler of the dynasty of demons. And they are saying about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub. A quite serious charge towards the one who is the son of God. The one who has his father and the father is pleased with him. They also say by the prince of demons. 
He is driving out demons. Not only is he possessed, but he's also driving out demons by the prince of demons. Now, there's a man who has lived for many years, and he ministered for many years, and he's coming towards the end of his life on this earth, a guy by the name of Billy Graham. And during his years of ministry, he has maintained a godly reputation. He's been sensitive to God as he has ministered the word of God. What would happen if someone made the charge against him that he is possessed by demons? It would affect his life, the life of his family. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, and the charge against him. He's possessed by Beelzebub. And it's by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. It's very obvious that Jesus has performed bona fide exorcisms. He has cast out demons. There's no question about that. That can't be denied in Mark 1. Clearly says, verse 25, Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently. And came out of him with a shriek. And then, in verse 34 of Mark 1, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. There was no issue of, did he do this? He did. They could not deny the power displayed by Jesus. They could not accept it being from God. Jesus had cast out demons. And they're claiming, in essence, that he's a son of Satan. He's a demonized sorcerer who majors in black art. Made Jesus supremely evil, a tool of the enemy, Satan. a very serious charge against Christ, the Son of God. I want to read a quote from James Edwards in his commentary on Mark, and I quote, The malicious judgment of the scribes is evident that faith and unbelief are not the result of proofs. There is a mistaken view abroad today that if only we saw the undisputed miracles of Jesus, we would believe or believe more. The scribes, however, have seen precisely such evidence, but they do not believe. Faith, in other words, is not automatically inevitable or necessary consequence of witnessing the acts of God. The words and deeds of Jesus are indeed evidence of God's presence, but the evidence demands a decision from the beholder as to its source and significance. Faith judges that the person and work of Jesus stand in continuity with the character of God and hence have saving significance. Disbelief judges that the person and the work of Jesus derive not from God, as the scribes suggest in this instance, but from the devil. End of quote. Jesus is on the earth as deity, as the Son of God, performing miracles. 
but the teachers of the law did not and would not accept it. Evidence does not necessarily mean faith. Now it's interesting that Jesus responds as he does. Very serious charges against him. And as he responds, remember that he knows he is God's son. The spirit is at work in him and he is being sensitive to the spirit. In verse 23 of the text says, so Jesus called them. Apparently, the teachers of the law are making the charge, but we're not necessarily nearby. So he calls the teachers of the law and spoke to them in parables. Parables have an intent not to reveal something totally. So he's speaking to them in parables. And he begins with a question. It's interesting that Jesus uses a question. You go back to the beginning of time. With Adam and Eve, God used questions. You will find the life of Christ is characterized by lots of questions. So Jesus poses a question to the teachers of the law. How can Satan drive out Satan? How can Satan drive out Satan? So to answer his own question, he says in verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And if you look at some kingdoms down through history, when they're divided, they cannot stand. And to further illustrate, he goes on in verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Take a marriage where mom and dad, husband and wife, are fighting, quarreling, going against one another, criticizing that marriage will not stand. If you have a family, and I'm talking beyond just a husband and wife, I'm talking an extended family that fights and quarrels, criticizes and tears down one another and fights, what happens? It can't stand. He goes on in verse 26, and if Satan opposes himself, and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. If Satan is casting out demons, he can't stand because he's opposing himself. So Jesus responds to the charge that he is possessed by Beelzebub, and it's by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? He can't. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, no, he can't stand. To further drive home his point, notice what he says in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man 
then he can rob his house. Now, as you read the flow of Mark, you read the flow of the text. The strong man in his house would be Satan. Who binds up the strong man? Jesus. Mark chapter 1. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And in Mark 5, we find that the man who is possessed by demons, his name is Legion. They're driven out by Jesus. So Jesus says to the teachers of the law, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob the house. I tell you the truth, speaking to the teachers of the law, all sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Now, what does it mean to blaspheme? Blaspheme is a malicious, false statement tending to defame. What was being said about Jesus by the teachers of the law? He is casting out demons by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. It's slander. It's a source of discredit. It's blame for something considered very bad. What was the charge against Jesus? The charge is he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now look at verse 29. And in saying that, they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Because it was by the Spirit of God that Jesus was doing what he did. So they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? This is my understanding as I study the text of Scripture. Jesus is on earth. He's performing miracles. Jesus is bodily on earth, performing miracles, casting out demons. John the Baptist's statement in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, concerning the Holy Spirit. John says, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert, that is, Christ was in the desert 40 days being tempted. They're saying Jesus was empowered by the prince of evil spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. They're taking the power of the Spirit of God and attributing it to 
evil spirits, or an evil spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. This sin seems to be a knowledge or a sin of knowledge that is learned religious people who saw, heard Jesus, but rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. The people who are accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub and driving out demons by the prince of demons were religious people who had knowledge. They were teachers of the law. Apparently involves a perversion of the heart which chooses to call light or darkness light and light darkness. Very, very serious charge concerning what is taking place. Now your question, a question may come to your mind, can the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit be committed today? This is Pastor Dan's thinking, okay? As far as whether it can be or not. And I'm not being dogmatic on this. It seems it could be committed today if a person read the gospel accounts of Jesus and claimed his miracles were due to the power of the prince of evil spirits rather than the Holy Spirit. But again, it's a sin of knowledge. The teachers of the law knew Scripture, would have had some idea of Christ, but attributed his power to Beelzebub rather than to the Holy Spirit. If you wonder whether you've committed blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, then probably you have not. Now, we can discuss Scripture, and we can seek to understand it. But let's make a couple applications. Jesus knew who he was. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He lived in dependency upon his father. Chapter 1, 35 through 39, as he talked with his father. And he lived... In the Holy Spirit, chapter 1 and verse 12, the application, knowing who we are in Christ as we love God through walking in the Spirit will enable us to resist, resist pressure from culture, peers, and family as a pattern of life. Here is Jesus Christ being rejected by his own family being rejected by the teachers of the law. And what does he do? He continues in life and responds to them very well because he knew who he was, the Son of God. He was living in dependency upon the Holy Spirit. As we know who we are in Christ, we're children of God, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, and so on. And we are loving God, dependent upon the Spirit of God, then we can resist pressure. So those of you who are in school, you resist the lure of the crowd at school 
because you know you're a child of God. You're sitting down at your computer and there's a temptation to look at something in the computer that is not correct and the Spirit of God reminds you that you're a child of God and you say, I'm a child of God. I don't want to pursue that angle. I don't want to go there. Your identity in Christ makes a difference. At the core of loving God and Christ today are two distinct, vital, foundational items. If we are going to love God today, I'm convinced as you read the Gospels, as you read the New Testament, there's two things that are vital. First, a deep-rooted conviction concerning Jesus' identity, His being, His character, as revealed in the Gospels and Revelation. Not necessarily what He did, but who He is. Do we believe Jesus is the Son of God? He is deity. He was a human but yet God, the one who cast out demons. His identity, his character, his being, and accepting him who, for who he was is critical. You may say, I know Jesus died for my sins, but who is he? Are you convinced of that? The scribes and the Pharisees were not. Very, very critical. Secondly, our identity in Christ as his children. Jesus knew who he was. He lived and responded accordingly. Do we know who he is? And do we know who we are in Christ? We're sons of God, daughters of God. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've been restored to favor with God. The Spirit of God lives within us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. And on and on as far as our identity in Christ. Remove either of these items or both. And we have religion and religious activity, but not Christ followers. The teachers of the law made the charge against Jesus Christ that he was blaspheming. Religious people accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub. They didn't know who he was. You can have religion and religious activity, but if it's not springing from Jesus and who he was and our identity in Christ, it's empty, it's vain, it's meaningless, it's nothing. And that's why Jesus says some pretty strong things about religious people. Another application. As we relate to unbelievers, we're tempted to think a miracle. Finding Noah's Ark and so on will change their mind and bring them to Christ. Oh, if only we could find Noah's Ark, people will repent and trust in Christ. They had Jesus here on this earth, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and what did they do? They rejected him. Evidence does not necessarily mean that someone will come to faith in Christ. Jesus is much greater evidence than Noah's Ark. 
that they rejected him. See, the Holy Spirit has to convict, John 16, verses 7 through 11. Christ is a smell of death to some people and life to others. Some people hear the gospel and it's the smell of death to them, they reject. Others hear the gospel and they come to faith in Christ and it's life. The Spirit of God has to convict. God's will is Christ alone. Christ Lift up Christ. Nothing wrong with evidence, but Christ has got to be lifted up. Believers living godly lives. And believers giving reason for their hope. That seems to be God's plan. Final application. There is no reason to be fearful or to be afraid of Satan. Jesus has defeated him. Take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I'll begin reading with verse 13. Colossians 2 and verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that were against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarmed the powers and authorities, the demonic, the spirit, world, Satan and his demons. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Hebrews 2, we won't turn there, but you will find that similar things are said. And in Revelation 20, 7 through 10, Satan and his demons' ultimate defeat is evident. So as, you read about, as we read about the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, Jesus being accused of being possessed by Beelzebub and having or casting out demons by an evil spirit, Christ has bound the strong man's house, and he has defeated him. And we can live with confidence today because of Christ and who he is and his work in our lives. God has given us the body of Christ. We want to sing about the body of Christ as we live in a fallen, imperfect world as Travis comes to lead us. Travis?